I ask you to open up to the book of Luke, open up to the book of Luke, and if you need a Bible, we've got uh, some Bibles to hand out to you. Love for you to just go ahead and take this Bible home with you. If, you. if you don't have a Bible and you need one, please do. Raise your hand and we'll pass one on to you if you need a Bible this morning. Um, love for you to be able to read the words. Uh, I think it's uh, much more powerful to see the actual words than just sort of hear it from me, so I encourage you to take that Bible. And in that Bible, we're going to be on page 748 this morning, Luke 16 starting in verse 1, Luke 16, starting in first verse 1. Now, I'm, I'm really happy to be getting back into uh, the Gospel of Luke. We did the first half of the Gospel of Luke, and we took a long break. We've done several other sermon series, and now we're back into Luke. And I was remembering back, and our study of the first half of Luke really coincided with, I would say, one of the most fruitful seasons of this, the life of this church, in terms of the number of people who came to faith, the sort of transformations that we saw taking place in people's lives. That coincided in large part with our study of the Gospel of Luke. So I come at this with a just sort of renewed joy and hope. And I've been looking at the texts that we're going to be covering, some wonderful texts, some challenging ones, some interesting ones, many that all of which apply to our lives. And so um, I'm walking into this with a kind of a renewed enthusiasm. Um, uh, one of the commentators on the Gospel of Luke said this regarding the Gospel of Luke, sort of the, the comprehensive summary of what it's about. Here's what he writes. He says, Salvation is neither ethereal, meaning sort of abstract, nor merely future, but embraces life in the present, restoring the integrity of human life, revitalizing human communities, setting the cosmos in order, and commissioning the community of God's people to put God's grace into practice among themselves and toward ever-widening circles of others. The third evangelist, Luke, knows nothing of such dichotomies or divisions as those sometimes drawn between social and spiritual and individual and communal. Salvation embraces the totality of embodied life, including its social, economic, and political concerns. For Luke, the God of Israel is the great benefactor whose redemptive purpose is manifest in the career of Jesus, whose message is that this Benefaction, this blessing of God, enables and inspires new ways of living in the world. That's a very grandiose statement, but it matches what the Gospel of Luke is about. It's a great summary of it. In fact, if you didn't catch it all and you want to read it again and maybe sit with it a little bit, on your way out today, we're going to have for you a summary of the Gospel of Luke and sort of the main points and structure of it, a a one-page, double-sided page, Um, that we sort of refreshed from the last time. And so if you're interested in reading that to kind of get yourself oriented in the Gospel of Luke, I encourage you to take one of those on your way out today and look that over. Now, today um, we're going to be talking in particular uh, about using what we have as a means of participating in what God is doing in the world. So I'm not talking just about money here. I'm talking about everything that God has given us. God gave you life. You're here this morning because you're breathing and you can move about. And God has given you something precious, life, and all the entailments of it. And the question we're going to grapple with a little bit this morning is how do, you, how do you receive that and then return it back to God in such a way that you get to participate in the wonderful things that God's doing in the world, just like we read from that that quote from the the commentator about what God is doing in the world. We get to participate in all that transformation when we take what we've been given and return it 
to God by participating in what he's doing. And, and, and we're talking a little, bit, a little bit about how you do that, but then this text really drives home why you would want to do it. And I think you'd be a little surprised at why you would want to take that step. So let's look um, at this passage in Luke 16, starting in verse 1. This is a parable that Jesus is telling to the disciples. It also seems that there are others around within hearing. And so he's kind of talking to two different audiences at the same time. He's just finished talking about um, the parable of the, the, the prodigal son and, and, and the whole, uh, we read that actually uh, last week a little bit, the whole story of grace, God's grace and the receiving of the father of the, of the lost son when he comes back to him. And so there's this flavor of the grace of God and the mercy of God that's surrounding this section of the text. And Jesus goes on to say this, verse 1 of chapter 16. He also said to his his disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. Jesus is telling a story that has a point. It's a parable. And in this story, you've got a manager and a master. And in that day, the manager would be the one who'd be overseeing the assets of the master. Oftentimes, the master would be a landowner, and and perhaps people would be working on the land, and they would be um, paying a portion back of what they made working on the land to the master through the manager. The manager would be the one to oversee that and to receive the payments. Or sometimes there would be business transactions, and and, and, and then the, for the repayment of those, they would go to the manager to repay him. So the manager is over all this. He's got a tremendous amount of authority over all that the master has. And yet, apparently, he's not been wielding his authority well. Verse 3. And the manager said to himself, What shall I do? Since my master is taking the management away from me, I'm not strong enough to dig. I guess that was one of the work options ahead of him. And I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. Even more so than today, the person's safety net was their friends and the family around them. So one would want to keep a strong safety net, and this man decides that's what he's going to do. Verse 5, so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first... How much do you owe my master? He said, a hundred measures of oil. He said to him, take your bill and sit down quickly and write 50. Then he said to another, how much do you owe? He said, a hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, take your bill and write 80. Now somebody actually went through and sort of wrote this out uh, in the original language and noticed that when you do that, to change the bill in the way that the master's done would take just a, a small stroke of the pen. So he's sort of, you know, just sort of taking the receipt or the, the bill and just changing a little bit of a stroke and, and coming up with these numbers. Now, what happens next is, ought to be completely surprising. And I, I know what you're probably thinking, if you were the master, how you would respond to this manager, right? Well, how does this master respond to the manager, verse 8? The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. 
And then this sort of cryptic statement that Jesus adds, for the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. We'll come back to that one. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in a very little is also faithful in much. And one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, and scholars uh, mostly uh, believe that that just referring to the, the wealth of this world in whatever form it takes, who will entrust to you the true riches, meaning the spiritual, the heavenly riches, or the, the ability to participate in what God is doing? Verse 12. And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Now, actually, this is one of the more challenging parables in the Bible. So I'm just going to punt, and we're done. No. Um, it really is. I mean, you look through the, 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 the different commentators, and they're like, wow, this is a hard one. Um, this is tough. Um, so let's try and pick our way through this a little bit and see, because God didn't, this wasn't by accident that it's in here. And I think, think in fact, you know, by the, by the beginning of the week, I was panicked. And by the end of the week, I felt like, okay, there's some really good stuff in here. So let's see if we can make that process together here in the few minutes that we have. I want to talk a little bit this morning uh, on this level. I want to talk about one truth that's in this text. It's really important. It, it's sort of the foundation for everything. And then two responses to that truth or if we could use a bigger word, admonitions, you know, call, something you should do. One truth and two admonitions or responses to that particular truth. So uh, there's a complication in here. Did you see that? That the master commends this dishonest uh, ma- manager. What do we do with that? Well, let's, let's talk about this. It looks like Jesus is endorsing dishonesty. That's the challenge when we read this parable. It looks like Jesus is endorsing the dishonesty of this man. Now, um, you know, when I was in seminary, and I remember just teaching us how to preach and, you know, talking about illustrations, and one of the things one of my professors said was, just beware of illustrations because they're always filled with landmines. In other words, you could be intending to say something, but accidentally you're saying something else, right? So, for example, if I said, you know, to my wife, you know, our marriage is like a battle, you know, and, and, and I meant by that, like, we're in the trenches together, fighting it out together, and the camaraderie that comes with that, you know. I mean, that's what I could mean, but she could take it, like, the other way, right? That we're always at each other, and it's a horrible thing. Not a very good compliment. So, um, there's, there, the illustrations are fraught with these kinds of complexities, and the same is true when we look at parables. That sometimes, some of the points are associated with what Jesus is saying, and some of the ones are not. And so, um, it can't be, in this particular situation that Jesus is saying, go out and cheat people like this man. I think we're pretty much on solid ground if you look at the teaching of Jesus overall. We're pretty certain that's not what he's saying, is go out and cheat people like this man. So what is it that, in fact, Jesus is saying in this text? Well, here's where the real truth comes in, first of all, the number one point, which is a truth to grasp. This man, this manager who's caught in this bind, casts himself on the assumed generosity 
of his master. You catch that? In the middle of his challenging circumstance, he casts himself on what he assumes to be the mercy, the grace, the generosity of his master. And that's the first point. He stops. He sort of thinks through his options. I could go dig for a living, um, but I don't think I'm strong enough to do that. I could go beg, and I just honestly, I, I can't do that. Uh, what am I going to do? And he sort of ponders, and then he sort of comes to this place um, where he says, I think the very best option, as strange as it sounds, is to cast myself on the very master that I've just betrayed. Now, interestingly, in the text, the listeners would have thought, as soon as the master realized that the manager had been stealing funds or mismanaging the funds, most of them would have thought, oh, he's going to jail. That's it. But that's not what the master does. So already we see a little bit of the grace of the master creeping in to the parable there. And then secondly, Luke, in constructing this, puts this very close to the story of the prodigal son. Now, we didn't capture that because we were just jumping in. We've been taking a break from Luke. But were we to read this through, very important to do that from time to time, to read your Bible straight through so you can catch the linkages there, we would see this connection between the grace of the chapter 15 and then also the grace that's being shown this man in chapter 16. So there's, there's this, this, sort of, this sort of aura of, of the mercy of God and the grace of God in the middle of this. And this man, he says, what are my options? I could do this or I could do that or the other thing. You know what? I think my best option is to throw myself on the mercy of this master. I trust him more than any other option there is. Even though I've betrayed him, I'm going to throw myself on his mercy. And that's, in fact, what he does. He, he risks the inevitable. He, he chooses to entrust uh, to the master uh, everything, that, everything that he is and everything that he has. And that is the shrewdness or the wisdom that is commended by the master in the text. To know where your help come from, comes from. To understand where your best help comes lies. That's wisdom. That's shrewdness. Maybe you've had somebody like this in your life who send that person when you're at your end of your rope is always the go-to person. Seems to always have a little bit of excess to give. Um, can handle your brokenness. You know, some of you, maybe it's your parents, you you know, if you're really in that desperate state, you know you can go home and they'll take you in and care for you and, and provide for your needs. Some of you, maybe it's not that, and you've, but God's given you a community outside of that. And it's just, there's a strength there, and you just know when you're at the end of your rope, you can go there. This text is saying, and this manager is saying, that's who, essentially the master, but what we really know, of, that's who God is. He's the one that even though all of your sin has ultimately been betrayal against him, nevertheless, he's still your best option to lay it all before him, to lean into his grace and his mercy. He's still your best option. You know, this whole Downton Abbey phenomena thing has been going on, um, and I have been resisting it. And I, what is going on? I mean, 
young men sitting next to me in the airplane weeping as they're watching Downton Abbey. I mean, my parents used to watch Masterpiece Theater all the time when I was growing up. It was like, okay, go to bed, and we're going to watch Masterpiece Theater. You're not going to like this. And it was true. You know, we would watch a little bit, and it's like, what is this? And, 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 and now, young men, like I say, sitting next to me uh, on the airplane, weeping over Downton Abbey. What is this? And I'm thinking, if I start watching this, I'm going to get hooked. And so my wife was wanting to watch it, and I'm saying, no, no, no. Finally, she prevailed. Because um, it is a battle a little bit, and she wins most of the time. And, and, uh, and, and so we, now we're, of course, just hooked. It's like, you know, we're texting each other. When can we put the kids to bed tonight? <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, and so um, there's a character in there. So forgive me for the many Downton Abbey illustrations that will be coming in the next little while. <laughs> but, yeah, some of you are going to like it, some of you are going to hate it. Um, so there's this woman who gets caught in this downward spiral, and it's horrible, and she ends up a prostitute, and she's just broken and wrecked, and there's, there's nothing left of her, and she even loses the child that she has, and she's just at the end of her rope, and then there's one of the noble women who started this sort of mission to, um, to people who are women who are prostitutes, to bring them out and to give them a new life, and and, and, and there's this, this, this prostitute, this woman, this, she walks in, and multiple times she walks into the room uh, where they're holding this mission, and she, she gets in the door, or first she just looks in the window, and she, you could tell every fiber of her being wants to go in and to receive help and to find grace and mercy, and she gets so close, and then she turns away and goes the other direction. And then you're, you're just going, ah, oh, you know, please open the door. And, and, then, um, and then she comes back again, and this time she gets in the door, and she, she talks, and she's, she's, a, she's about to take a step, and she, she explains her situation, and then she gets scared, and she runs the other direction. And then she comes in a third time, and you're just saying, please, take this step, right? There's one, there's a group of people standing there waiting to help you, to bring you blessing. Take this step in your circumstance. Step out and ask for help. Cast yourself upon the grace and the mercy of those around you. And this is what the manager does. And this is what God is calling you to do and calling me to do today. No matter how many times we've had to walk into that room and we're so tired of having to do this again, we're so ashamed of our failures, we're so ashamed of our sin and how we've fallen short, we're struggling, and we don't want to even admit it again. No matter how many times we've walked into that room, Jesus is saying to you today, cast yourself on my mercy and my grace. Impose on me. Impose your brokenness on me. Because my shoulders are broad, and I can take it, and I want it, and I want you. And if this morning you're here and you're one of those people who's kind of on a spiritual search and you're trying to figure out what you believe about God and if there's a God and and how all that works, I want to encourage you to consider um, the call that this God is making to you today, which is in the midst of your brokenness, in the midst of your pain and your struggle, in the midst of your sin and your shame and your guilt, He's saying to you this morning, Cast yourself on me.
even though I'm the very one that you've betrayed. I am your best bet. I'm your best option. So lean into my mercy and forgiveness. Be like this steward. Kind of cheeky what this guy does. But it's because he knows the character of his master. That's the foundational truth out of which everything comes. We've got to grasp that one first. Don't look anywhere else. Look to Christ. Don't find it, try to seek some other gospel. Look to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, out of that then comes a couple of, of responses that we might have. Um, some admonitions, some ways to live. Once you receive that, some ways to live differently in this world. And the first one is this, is that after being generous towards us in that way, God now invites us to be generous towards others. To embrace His character and to be generous with our lives, toward, to be generous like Him towards others. Now, this text doesn't specify exactly how to do that. It focuses more on the motivation for doing it, which we'll get to in a minute. But um, we can think about that on our own, right? We're talking here about being generous towards our family. We're talking about being generous, and I don't mean just money. I mean in our character, in the way we express our love, in the way we compliment, in the way we, we serve, in the way that we spend time, where we give time, the way we're willing to jump and help and whenever there's need. That's the, the full orb generosity. God's calling us to be like Him and to be generous like that with the people around us, our family, our friends, uh, the associates, the people that you work with. Uh, how many of those people that you work with have needs right now that you know of? And what are some of those needs that you could respond to and be generous about? Um, what about the, the generous towards your neighbors? Um, to be a willing hand. They know that when, when the chips are down, oh yeah, the people across the street, they'll step in and they'll help us. They got our back. When, when, when they're sick, they get food from you. you know, that's generosity, right? God's calling us to this sort of generosity, to be like Him, to be gracious towards others. And not only in those environments, but in our church environment towards one another. That's what home group is so special. We, it's a place where we can practice a godly generosity towards each other. And then, uh, as we move out into the community, to practice it in the world so that people see the heart of God in the midst of the people of God and have their curiosity awakened for who is this God who's so generous and calls into existence a people who are generous as well. Now, those are the ways that we can do it, some of the environments in which we can be generous. And, 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 and in this text, we don't really have much of the discussion of, of that. But what we do have is a discussion on why we would be generous. The last part of this text talks about why would we become the kind of people that reflect the character of God. And there are several reasons in here, and I want to quickly just run through them. The first one is kind of a hedonistic or self-centered reason. It's surprising. The Bible motivates sometimes by saying, hey, this will be good for you. Do it, because it's good for you. And that's what happens in verse 9. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth. So whatever you have that's sort of of the world, um, use it to make friends for yourself, so that when it fails, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. Now, I'm not sure uh, exactly what that means, but the image I get as I read that is I, I, I picture myself someday, um, you know, stepping into heaven inevitably. Um, I'll die and, and, and I'll walk in. And, you know, what if, what if they're greeting me is that broken down, um, maybe homeless, uh, 
maybe mentally uh, disturbed person who now is fully in their right mind and healed and redeemed and experiencing you know, life as they were meant to experience it. And what if that person is there to welcome me? I mean, what, what's that image like? Can you, can you picture that? Can you imagine the, the sweetness of that? That's the image that, that Jesus is calling forth here, that we'd be generous towards those in need around us and that there will be a spiritual blessing and a benefit on the other side of that. So for the first one's kind of a hedonistic one. The second one, in verse 10, one who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in very little is also dishonest in much. So there's an integrity kind of piece going on here. Verse 11, if then you have not been faithful in unrighteous wealth, who will entrust to you the true riches? So be generous towards others in the way that God is generous towards you, because um, out of that will come true riches. Now, what are true riches? In the context of this particular passage, um, this is what we're getting at, which is this idea of participating in God's work in the world, God's movement, His redemptive processes in the world. Participation in that, that's the true riches. And it's on this side of heaven, it's on the other side of heaven that we get to see the fruit of it. Those are the true riches. And you know that. When you've seen somebody that you care about or that you love uh, come to faith in Jesus Christ or, or find transformation in the midst of their brokenness and pain and struggle, you know that to be sitting on the front row of that, to watch that take place, to even have God work through you to bring that about, there is nothing sweeter, there's nothing better than that. I've said this many times. I've jumped out of an airplane before, and it was really fun, but nothing compares to those moments when I'm sitting in my office and somebody decides to make a decision for Jesus Christ. Or some, some sin that's been bes- enslaving them, they break free of it in the power of the Holy Spirit working in their lives. Nothing compares to that kind of stuff. And those are the true riches, right? And, 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 and by, by being generous towards the people around you, you get to participate in those riches, And then verse 13. No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. There's something very, very difficult about a conflicted life. A life where you've got two masters and you're constantly trying to fend them both off and you're trying to to live in the middle and and you're torn in two because you've got this, this, the confliction that comes with multiple masters, and Jesus says, if you take me on and live me out and take on my heart, you will break the enslavement to money and riches of this world that have you serving a slave master. You will break that, and you will have the freedom and the joy of living for one master, the one who made you and loves you, who died on the cross for you to demonstrate his love for you, you will be, you have the freedom and joy of serving that master who's proven himself over and over and over again. That's the freedom I want for you, Jesus says. And so it behooves you to take on generosity. Take it on board. Take it on the, as the character of your life to give and to let go for the people around you. Now, this leads directly into the next 
response, next admonition, because they're two very connected. Jesus basically says now, okay, this is what I want you to do. Be generous towards others. Give of yourself towards others and do it with shrewdness and urgency. Do it with shrewdness and forethought and carefulness and urgency. That's what he says. That's what the meaning of verse 8, second half is. This sort of cryptic verse, for the sons of the, this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I love how one of the commentators, uh, Daryl Bach, says, he says, Christians should apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from money and the world. I need to read that again. Christians should apply themselves to honor and serve God in their actions as much as secular people apply themselves to obtain protection and prosperity from the money and the world. Isn't it amazing what people do in this world? We make big metal objects that fly in the sky and carry lots of people. How incredible is that, right? It takes an incredible focus to be able to make that. And, and Jesus, Jesus is saying the same kind of effort and intentionality that is used in the construction of those kinds of things. He wasn't referring to airplanes. But in those kinds of things, um, in the way that people conduct business in the world, we should conduct our ministry to the world with the same intensity. We often think about the shrewd people and then the merciful people. There are two different categories, right? The shrewd people make a lot of money in the world, and the merciful people help a lot of people, but they drive around really old cars and camp on vacation all the time, right? Uh, and whatever else it is, right? Because um, they're the merciful people, and then there's the shrewd people, and there's these two different camps. And Jesus is saying, be shrewd about your mercy giving. Take that same kind of forethought and effort and apply it to dispensing the grace of God in this world. The church is not a, a second-class kind of leftover institution, in other words. You know, I, when we were first starting this church, one of the mantras I, was, I always said to myself to try and, you know, do the best, because, you know, if, if people made airplanes the way we often do church, would you get in one? Right? Well, we should be able to answer that question, yes, because the way we do church is with excellence and forethought and shrewdness and intentionality. And that's what we want to bring. All of that, not for a selfish gain, but for bringing the grace and the mercy of God generously to the world around us. That's what this text is calling us to. That's what it means, that second part of verse 8, to be shrewd in our mercy, to be urgent, to have foresight in the way we dispense of our mercy. We need to apply that same focus and that same, same shrewdness. And that happens on different levels, right? The individual level. Um, when you go to work, you get out a blank piece of paper and you think about, what's my strategy? What am I going to do? How am I going to advance? How am I going to take care of the issues? And you've got all kinds of software and programs that help you to do this. And it's really, uh, it takes a long time to learn it all. And then you say, and I'm going to go, and I, and I also want to be a good Christian to my neighbors. Um, we'll see how that happens. And, and that's sort of it, right? You know, what, if we, what if we took out a blank sheet of paper or got some people together and we said, how can we do this well? What does it look like to dispense gener generosity to the neighbors around me and the people in my life? What does it look like to love 
the people that have, God's placed in my life, to be strategic about it, to actually be intentional and to really go up. And I know, pull myself back here, a lot of us are doing that already. Wonderful things happening. But God's calling us to more. He's calling us to do that, to make this a way of life, to, to be shrewd about our grace, to be shrewd about our mercy towards others. We can think of it on the, the home group level. Um, when you're gathered together, to, to bow your heads in prayer and say, Lord, give us a way to bless the people around us. Give us a way to demonstrate your, your character and your love to the people around us and, and to seek the Lord together and to get out a blank sheet of paper and to brainstorm and to strategize and to think about how are we going to do this? How are we going to bring the gospel to bear in the lives of the people around us? And then, of course, that happens on the corporate level as well. Uh, Jason Wu is our missions director. And for the last year and a half, we have literally been you know, in the office just going round and round analyzing what is the best way to structure the missions. And we really hope that in this coming year, missions is going to become a bigger part, uh, global missions, of what we do. And we've been working at it. And, and, and sometimes it's been, honestly been frustrating, I think, for him, because I'm kind of a stick in the mud. Um, but, but we've been going back and forth. And, 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 and yet at the end of the day, we've come up with something, a plan that I think is much more solid and much more serviceable than what it would have been. And it's that kind of intensity and intentionality that we need to bring to what we do on the corporate level. We're looking, there's a group, a team of people who's looking to expand what we do and count me in to make that more effective. Andrew Franklin is going to be returning um, first week of July, so just two weeks from now. Whew, glad he's going to be back. Um, and, uh, and Brent will be back then, too, from having a baby. So um, if I look beleaguered in the next couple of weeks, that's why. Uh, anyway, uh, Andrew's going to come back and, and help us with that strategic plan about how we're going to help and take advantage of the opportunities we've been given to serve the homeless in our community. And so we're going to be looking to do this. And so it's happening, but God is saying on one level, yes, keep doing it and look for more and maybe push it more onto the individual level. How can we become more and more like Christ is calling to. Now, we'll never do enough. Let's just make sure. And this is not so that we can have good salvation or anything. Jesus has already done everything to bring us into the family. There's nothing we could do. But as the text said, living this way brings a kind of a richness, a closeness to the heart of God, a deeper understanding of the character of God. It's the way we were meant to live. It's kind of generosity to reflect God's character. Because isn't this what he's done all along with us? Isn't this what God has done? I mean, you look at the Bible and you go, it seems kind of chaotic on first reading. Um, all these crazy people and these stories and, wow, there's some strange names and people do some wild things. And how does it all fit together? And then you start to sit with it more and more and you, you rest in it. And you, you, you grapple with it, and you start to see underlying the chaos is a deep, eternal, strategic, intentional plan that God has been unfolding over seasons and eons. And it's all about his generosity. He has, and we sang this song, he has been pursuing us by his love, to bring us back in. There are prophecies in the Old Testament that are somehow amazingly fulfilled in Jesus Christ in the New Testament. There is an intentional plan of pursuit 
that God is unfolding and has been unfolding in the person of Jesus Christ over eons, and it is all about him demonstrating his graciousness towards us that we might step into it, receive it, and then take it on board as our heart. So we want to pray today, first of all, that, Lord, you would continue that work of demonstrating your favor, mercy, grace, forgiveness, love, pursuit of us, to us. That, that as we sit here this morning, we want to receive that anew and understand more and more the depth of your generosity. Not only have you given us life and made us in your image, but when we marred that image, you came after us in Jesus Christ and redeemed us and brought us back into your family. That's the most important thing about our identity. Help us to sit in that. And like that, that prostitute who couldn't get herself to step into the room and ask for help for fear of judgment. Lord, we, we are called to come to you in the midst of our brokenness and to, to step out and you will receive us. So we rest in that first. And then as we absorb your generosity towards us, we take it on board as our heart and begin to dispense your generosity to the people around us as you empower us. And that makes our life rich and meaningful and purposeful. And we not only want to do that casually, we want to do it with intentionality and focus shrewdly with wisdom with excellence so that more and more people might know your love in Jesus Christ. We pray that in his name. Amen. As you come forward today for communion, uh, maybe you want to think about that generosity of God this morning. Lots of things you can think about when you come forward, but take some time to think about the generosity of God and and after you've taken the, com the communion, you're on your way back to your seat, then maybe you pray a little prayer and, and, and ask God to show you how now will you show that generosity to others. Lord, guide me, direct me, show me. I don't know what to do, show me. And maybe you want to get out a journal today and, and, and write some things down and, and think that through. On the night that he was betrayed, the, 